Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Vishal Talraja is an awesome educational thinker. He's co-founded Dream a Dream along with 11 others. It's a collaborative, cooperative exercise designed to empower children and young people from vulnerable backgrounds to overcome adversity and flourish in our times. They use a creative life skills approach. It's a charitable trust. They've currently got over 10,000 young people a year moving through their programs. They've impacted over 200,000 children and young people in their work and impacted over a million children in the happiness curriculum in partnership with the Delhi government. Adriano, it's an absolute pleasure for us to be talking with Vishal today. Let's go. Well, Phil, it's wonderful to be with you again, and I'm really excited about this opportunity to engage with Vishal. And Vishal, we're going to get launched straight into it. My very first question to you is a very simple one, and one that we have asked all of our game changers across Series 1, Series 2, and now in Series 3. And that is, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your own story and how you've gotten to where you are right now as one of the 11 co-founders of Dream a Dream? Again, Andriano and Phil, thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this amazing series. To tell you a bit about myself, born and brought up in a city called Bangalore in India. Born to relatively poor parents uh, who both had to work very hard in the early years to make sure me and my two sisters got the best access to education that we could get. What I learned in those early years of growing up was the idea that education is definitely a way out of poverty. So I invested uh, listening to my parents on uh, achieving good educational outcomes for myself. I went into university, completed university, and I was all set to become an investment banker. But around that time, I got a chance to go to Finland on an exchange program for three months. Uh, I was the first kid in the family traveling abroad. It was an amazing opportunity. I decided to take it. And I was 21 years old. And it was in Finland. I got an opportunity to think about my life and who do I want to be. And I met other young people from university. And I realized that in India, uh, you follow a very linear trajectory of life. You go to school, you get top grades, you go to college, you get top grades, you get a graduation. You get a job, you get married, you buy a house, you pick up a car, you have kids. But what I saw in Finland was that a lot of young people in university were taking gap years, traveling around the world, uh, contributing to social causes. And that got me thinking about who do I want to be. And the idea that emerged for me was this whole idea of dignity. Uh, Mm -hmm. Finland works on a strong social welfare economy system. So I could be friends with a software engineer at Nokia and also be friends with a bartender at a local bar. Mm -hmm. Uh, And each human being was treated with respect and dignity, irrespective of what jobs they did or what backgrounds they came from. But in India, we grew up in a very class and caste divided society. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though I grew up in relative poverty, uh, there were kids in my neighborhood who were more poor than me. And I grew up with those class biases. Uh, I was told not to play with kids from those 
forms because they might spoil me. Mm. So I became aware about the class biases and prejudices I grew up with. And I really respected and liked the idea of dignity that I experienced in Finland. And I said, I want to go back to India and change the way we look at dignity for every human being. And I was 21. I could think like that. I, I, was, uh, I could think wild. Uh, so came back and within a month spoke to a bunch of friends who got excited by the idea and we started Dreamitry. And that's how my journey into this space started. I did work as an investment banker for a couple of years, but uh, this was just too amazing and too inspiring to let go of and it, this became my life purpose. Well, I think it's really exciting that education chose you and that the banking world uh, is now behind you because uh, so much of what we're about to hear is inspirational in relation to Dream a Dream. Can you share with our listeners a little bit of a brief overview of Dream a Dream as a not-for-profit organisation and how it supports approximately 10,000 young people at the moment? Uh, so Dream a Dream uh, is 20 years old as an organisation. We started the organization with an idea of working with children from marginalized communities, vulnerable backgrounds. These are children who were either orphaned or abandoned or run away from home or children who live with very poor, in very poor neighborhoods, uh, in very poor families. What we realized very early on was that uh, while they had access to basic needs, food, clothing, shelter, even basic access to public education, none of it was really preparing them for success in the future. Mm -hmm. Their life trajectory was more or less decided for them and no one was really helping them transition into a very different future. So that's what we started working on. We said, if we create learning opportunities for these children where they learn a set of life skills, like problem solving, decision making, managing conflict, uh, working in collaboration, abilities to adapt and respond to the complexities and uncertainties of life, they might have a better chance to chart out their own future. So that's how we started off. Uh, we started off by partnering with schools. These are public schools uh, or charitable free schools or low-cost private schools. Uh, and running after-school programs uh, in these schools. The after-school programs are primarily 90-minute session after-school hours focused on helping children develop life skills using play and art as a medium. Again, play and art were chosen because we realized play and art are intrinsically rich in developing life skills. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go back to our own childhoods, we don't remember much of our chemistry and biology and physics, but we would remember the transformative experiences we had when we were in the football field or playing basketball or where we were in a theater group or in a music group. Uh, these were the real experiences that shaped our character, shaped our values, shaped our life skills. So how about giving them sustained, consistent exposure to play and art-based uh, pedagogical approaches to help develop their life skills? Uh, Michelle, but, this stuff is just music to our ears. If, mm. if I can just ask you to elaborate in this in a particular way. When you, when, we've been doing some work on a concept called A School for Tomorrow, which is about yeah. thinking about what the future of schooling looks like. That's what this whole series of game changes is really asking people to do. And the sort of life skills that you're talking about, other people call them soft skills, other people call them key competencies. We like the term competencies ourselves, but the terminology is irrelevant. In terms of what you're talking about, you're talking about the response to change, we'd call that adaptive expertise, the way to organise yourself and live successfully in a life, we would call that self-efficacy. I'm really interested, therefore, in what you see success 
for these children being? What What is it? What's the end game for the students yeah. that you're trying to help? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Phil. And uh, for us over the years, our learning has been that the nature of success for these kids is moving away from one academic success or income and jobs to the idea of thriving, where they as individuals learn to thrive. Also along the way, help their families, communities, the larger society and the planet to thrive. If you look at traditional education, traditional education actually has, uh, has made us very selfish. It's a very individualistic success approach. Uh, I, as a kid, was always competing with my peers and colleagues in class uh, to do better than them. And then when I went into workspaces, I continued to make decisions that were always going to help me as an individual, help me succeed, help me get a promotion, help me rise up the ladder of success, leaving everyone else behind. And along the way, we have made decisions that have impacted not just us, but people around us and the planet. So we need to redefine the idea of success in the, in the future, which is moving away from traditional jobs and incomes to the idea of thriving. For kids growing up in difficult backgrounds, the idea of thriving is twofold. One idea of thriving is around owning your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kids growing up in poverty or difficulty are always told, uh, you know, let go of your story, let go of your past. Uh, it's almost like a rejection of their past. And that doesn't actually empower them. That, uh, that actually uh, confines them to uh, not having an identity. But if they learn to own their past, but not necessarily have the past define their future, so you learn to own the past and accept and acknowledge the, the story that you've had that has shaped you and your identity and your value system and use that to then shape a very different future for yourself. So that's one idea around owning your story, uh, around the idea of thriving. And the second is that when, when you explore the idea of thriving, it's not just a selfish individual thriving idea but the idea that also includes families, societies, and the larger planet. Oh, and, and again, all of what you're talking about here aligns so beautifully with what really, really uh, forward thinkers around the world in education are deriving from their work um, in lots and lots of different ways, particularly that notion of thriving and selflessness. I wanted to pick up that notion of owning your own story and ask you to apply it to yourself because our listeners, they're the forward thinkers and they've got lots and lots of good ideas. You had an idea that's as good as any. It's about human dignity. Like there can't be any better idea than that. And what you've been able to do over 20 years is to take an idea that could have been local in impact. It's now global in impact. What have you done to help own your own story and bring this excellent idea from a small impact to a global impact? Great question, Phil. Uh, My own story continues to be an exploration. I continue to unravel and unwrap aspects of my story. The two things that I have explored in the last 20 years, uh, one is for many years, I never acknowledged the fact that I grew up in poverty myself. And acknowledging that, that I grew up in an environment of poverty uh, really helped me then look at my my story very differently looked at while I had an amazing support system and an amazing family, there were certain structural inequities that I grew up with. uh, And I had to learn to acknowledge them if I had to understand the structural inequities that continue to exist for young people growing up in a country like India today. The second aspect of my story was that I also grew up in a very patriarchal society. I was one boy and two sisters, and I was always given special treatment. 
uh, I could go go to school and come back and throw my bags around and sit in front of the television and watch television all evening. But my sisters had to go into the kitchen and help my family, help my mother with household chores and cooking and food will be served to me on, on the table and my empty plate would be taken away from me. I was never allowed to get into the kitchen. I never knew when my sisters hit puberty. I never knew the challenges my sisters faced as women growing up in, in, a, in a city like Bangalore, going into a school. And that's been a deep exploration for me over the last two years. As I understood aspects of my own story, how that translates into our work with young people itself is that when young people have life skills of self-regulation and exploration and reflection um, and self-awareness and empathy, they will, as life situations and life experiences happen to them, learn to unravel more of their story. And as they learn to unravel more of the story and understand more of themselves, they will be more empowered to make very different choices for themselves and for their children and families. So Vishal, just exploring that a little bit further now, I love what I'm hearing here in relation to this inherent humanness that has been central to a focus of yours and, of course, Dream a Dream. You are working with young people from very diverse and very vulnerable backgrounds, and you're helping them not only overcome that adversity, but also embrace the essence of who they are, their origins, to give them a sense of belonging, a sense of meaning, and a sense of strong identity. Can you then talk perhaps with our listeners a little bit about how can we really achieve true equity in learning? I think there are two, three aspects to achieve equity in learning. One is to recognize that children and young people who are growing up in difficulty grow up with early childhood experiences of adversity. What that means is in the early years, zero to 10, if children experience extreme poverty or neglect or lack of emotional love and care or in extreme cases, exposure to war or displacement or abuse or violence, it impacts their ability to achieve developmental milestones. It impacts their ability to understand and respond to emotions, to build healthy relationships. To give you an example, you know, when we used to work in the early years with uh, shelter homes uh, where we had kids who were orphaned or abandoned, when we walked into the shelter homes, kids would come running up to us and hug us and jump on us and you know, kind of pull at our hair and pull at our clothes. And we thought these kids were so loving and caring. But if I came to your house for the first time, and if you had a five-year-old daughter, she wouldn't do that with me. She would mm -hmm. hide behind you. She would peek out and wait for an indication from you. Even then, when you kind of push her to come, come, come out and say hello, she'll say a quick hello and run away. Now, that's healthy. That's normal development. That's how you want all children to respond to strangers. But children, because of early childhood experiences, don't know how to build healthy relationships, end up then growing up in violent and domestic violent relationships. So one is to recognize that our education system is designed as a one-size-fits-all system. So when you're working with children who are growing up in adversity, and in a country like India, where 80% of children entering school systems today are first-generation schoolgoers, which means that they do come from poverty, the school system is not understanding the adversities they've experienced and because of which the behavioral challenges that these children walk into the school system with. And unless we learn to customize and personalize education to meet the needs of children who are first-generation school goers, education is not going to help them. It's not going to work for them, one. Second, if you look at the future, the future has become increasingly uncertain and complex. 
mm-hmm. uh, the pace of change in the world is increasingly fast. For my father, when he was growing up, he could take one job, one profession, and he stayed in that one job and one profession all his life. I have changed two professions. But yeah. when I look at children today, as they grow up to be adults, they're probably going to enter jobs that have not yet been even created. Mm-hmm. And yet we are continuing to focus on teaching children things that are redundant. And this becomes a double whammy for children from marginalized communities. They not only have to catch up to their developmental milestones caused because of childhood adversity, but they also have to develop the skills they need to respond and adapt to a fast-changing, uncertain, complex future. And interestingly, I mean, this pandemic has told us that the future is actually already here. Mm-hmm. This level of uncertainty and complexity already is here in the world, and our children are experiencing that anxiety right now. So education systems have to be agile, uh, have to be fast-moving themselves, have to acknowledge that we are entering complex, uncertain futures, and be able to then transform education from knowledge-driven societies to creating lifelong learners, to create in children abilities to be lifelong learners. So, Vishal, if we, if we look at that notion of creating lifelong learners in the program, we've sort of looked at it at a, at a, at a macro level. Let's take it right down onto the ground. If I was yeah. to walk into a learning space, what would I see happening with one of your programs? Walk me through a day or an hour or a seminar or, or, or whatever it is. So we've created a framework that we call the Arc of Transformation Framework, which, is, which will be placed through all our work with children, young people, teachers, and government systems. So if you walk into, say, an after-school program at Dreamatrain, which is a 90-minute life skills session, uh, let's take an example of a play-based activity. Say we, we are, you're teaching football to children. Now, the first time you give a ball to a group of children uh, and put them onto an open field, they're all going to run after the ball. And you have a facilitator who's trying to teach them that each one of us have a role to play in a football game. We have positions. So what the facilitator could potentially do is instead of having two goalposts, you have four goalposts. Uh, So now you have two teams. Each team has two goalposts that they can score in or two goalposts that they have to defend. And, you know, you have kids running around with the ball and suddenly the ball gets passed to a kid who sees an opening where no one is protecting a goal and you score, score a goal. Now, what this kid has had in that moment is a deeply transformative experience, but they don't know that yet. They have had something different and their body knows it because in your body, suddenly you felt, oh, how cool is this? I scored a goal. I'm really cool. I was standing in my position where the coach asked me to stand and I was able to score a goal. You've got all these thoughts running in your head, but you don't know really how to make sense of them. So you've created a transformative experience. And when you close the game, you bring them back into a circle and you have a reflection process. In the reflection process, you ask kids to start sharing what happened on the football field. And you'll have this kid excitedly sharing, you know, I, I was standing in my position, I got the ball and I scored the goal. Now what you're doing is through a reflection process, creating meaning, creating meaning for the transformation that the kid has just had, giving them language. And language is very important if you want to sustain transformation. Once the kid is able to articulate what happened to them and they're able to give language to that, they can take this experience outside the football field into their life. Okay, so if I play, what are the roles I play in my life? I play a role of a son, a brother. I play the role of a friend, a student. How do I play these roles? How do I show up in these roles? These reflective questions help the kid take the experience back into the real life. And then at the end of it, when you have a celebration, which is that, okay, because I've realized that 
I am very good at playing roles in my life. This is what I'm going to do from here on. I'm going to recognize the roles I play in life and I'm going to respond to them very differently. For each kid, the experience could have been something else. So it's about being agile enough to respond to the experience in that moment, to create language and meaning of that experience and creating a celebration of that experience. So that's really the arc that we create. Now imagine if you do this for 40 sessions in a year. What you've created is 40 potential opportunities for a transformative experience for every child, which could potentially stay with them for life. That's tremendous. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brilliant example of how you go from the general to the specific, from a framework which is based on values and intention to pedagogy on the ground, which really follows a process. And again, in, in our research on this, we, we talk about this as an apprenticeship moment. Um, the transformation is important. Yeah. The exchange of power is important. I'm sitting here and as you're talking, I'm sitting here and thinking about my two years when I was seven and eight of playing soccer on a windy field in, in the middle of winter mm. where there was no process and I never scored a goal. The only trophy <laughs> I ever got was the thanks for turning up prize. You know, so it's sort of, um, <laughs> you know, it's, for, for all of us, there have to be better ways of doing things and we need to be prepared to do things differently to achieve better outcomes. One of the challenges that good ideas face is that they need to be proven in the crucible of previous experience. So here's a bunch of yeah. people saying, but we're doing it this way. Why would we do it this way? So to which I would then say, Vishal, how do we know that these transformative moments are working? Two, two ways. One is a lot of recent research in neurosciences uh, that is focusing on how brain development happens and uh, how we build memories. A big piece of our work is around understanding how body memories are developed. So for example, when we have a transformative experience, and if you go back to your own life and think of a transformative experience that you have had, the first memory that gets developed is in your body. And now when you're thinking about that experience in this moment, something is happening in your body. Maybe you're getting goosebumps, maybe you're getting shivers, maybe you're getting butterflies in your stomach that memory is getting triggered first in your body. Uh, so recognizing that transformative experiences first create memories in the body, and then the mind catches up. Then the cognitive mind catches up to articulation and meaning making. The second is being able to assess this, assess the development of life skills, assess the development of behaviors that the children are developing because of these experiences. So we worked with clinical psychologists since 2007, and we've developed what we call a life skills assessment scale which is a five point life card scale looks at five life skills. And it's an observation based scale that looks at understanding and following instructions, managing conflict, problem solving, interaction with each other, and taking initiative as life skills. Not because these five are the most important life skills, but these five life skills are easily and visibly observable in any kind of learning mediums, formal or non-formal. This life skills assessment scale today is standardized, it's internationally recognized, it's published in academic journals, it's been used in about eight countries. This assessment scale shows us the number of children who are moving uh, from say, uh, not yet able to show life skills or demonstrate life skills to, to be able to show these indicators independently. Uh, and we've been using this scale now for 12 years to measure the impact of our work. So what, what, what I'm hearing is that we've got a framework, we've got a pedagogy, we've got a process and an intention that's put in there, very deliberate. We've got then a combination of the intuition and the judgment of the professional on the ground. 
We've got an entire research base which has been brought to play in that moment. And we've got a tool that's being used to gather evidence. So we've got something which is evidence-based, research-driven, and also grounded in the judgment of the professional. How do you train people to be able yeah. to do this? Uh, <laughs> uh, using exactly the same approach, the Arc of Transformation Framework. So we work with about, we've now worked with about 10,000 teachers and educators across India and Kenya. What we recognized uh, in 2010, uh, before we started our teacher, uh, what we call the teacher development program, uh, is one of the most defining aspects of our work, which was really creating transformation in addition to the medium of play and art and the framework that we had developed was the presence of a caring, empathetic adult in a child's life. Now, if you look at, again, a child growing up in any kind of disadvantage or vulnerability, having one adult champion in their life who cares for them, who trusts them, who does not judge them, who listens, who brings authenticity into the relationship, uh, is truly a game changer for that child. So what we did was we said, let's introduce this element also into our approach. So you've got the medium, which is use of art and play, You've got the framework, which is the arc of transformation framework. And now we introduced the idea of a caring, empathetic adult. Uh, and that led us to design of the teacher development program. The elements of the teacher development program uh, or how we train adults to do this is it's an eight-day trainings uh, broken up into four workshops of two days each. The first workshop is really just focused on the individual, uh, helping teachers and educators uh, reconnect with their own stories. Uh, understand things like, okay, why did I choose to be a teacher? What was it that inspired me, motivated me to be a teacher? How do I connect to that story? How do I own that story? The second aspect is how do I build empathy for myself and the child? How do I understand that the behaviors that I'm seeing in my classroom when the child is being restless or aggressive or extremely quiet has a story behind it? And how do I develop empathy for that? And I can only develop empathy for the other when I have empathy for myself. The third is how do I develop a set of skills around say, listening and validation and authentic speaking and facilitation and designing learning experiences while I'm delivering traditional subjects like mathematics or sciences? And how do I then practice those skills? So these eight days really take teachers and educators through this journey of reconnecting with their own stories, reconnecting with the child with, from a space of empathy and building the skills that are needed from traditional teacher roles to now a facilitator-based roles. What's really interesting in, in what I'm hearing you share with us today, Michelle, is that we've gone from the application of art and play to kind of great learning constructs that really delve deep into developing interpersonal and cognitive and creative skills. Then, of course, you're sharing with us this kind of learning continuum across the arc of transformation uh, using the measurement scale, that the life skills assessment measurement scale that you mentioned. And now we've come to, to the individuals that you've identified as the kind of critical friend, the person that's really significant in helping that young person discover so much about their capacity from a character point of view, a competency point of view uh, going forward. I really like this idea of a teacher as a designer and as a mentor, one that has to operate from a position of contemplation and deep reflection of themselves, yeah. uh, and then they're able to build that natural empathy for all the learners in their care. I want to extend that beyond now the curriculum, the assessment, and the individuals supporting them. To be able to actually support over 10,000 young people, and at the top of this show, Phil mentioned statistics that went into the millions 
Dream a Dream is an organisation that has been really successful in partnering with private enterprise to deliver this kind of new normal for learning and schooling. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about the type of community and corporate partnerships that you have engaged in so that this ideal of a new tomorrow is, is going broader than just a handful of young people? Great question, Adriana. For us, the community partners really look at all the stakeholders that uh, influence and impact the life of a child and the learning space of a child. And I can define that as first line and second line actors. The first line actors are people who directly work with the child. So the teacher, the parent, the peers and colleagues that the child has, the facilitators that work with the children. And there our partnerships have really been in one listening listening to what are the challenges on the ground and how can we then help them develop aspects of care and empathy uh, in their own being, in the way they respond and engage with children in learning environments. The second line actors are really people who take decisions around the child. So these could be, for example, uh, government officials, policy makers, teacher trainers, uh, people who design pre-service teacher training programs, Uh, employers who decide what kind of qualifications or certification or degrees a person needs to have before they hire them. And how do we shift mindsets there has been a key piece of our work over the last 20 years. For example, traditionally parents uh, demand from the school system that my child should get top marks in examinations, my child should get homework, uh, my child should get access to subjects. How do we shift that mindset where parents start demanding that, are you preparing my child to succeed in this complex, uncertain future? Are you preparing my child to build healthy relationships? Are you preparing my child to be kind and empathetic to himself, herself, and others? When we can shift teachers, uh, parents' mindset to ask very different questions and very to have very different expectations of education in the school system, then school systems will be forced to shift. If you look at employers, for example, employers today look at your resume, look at what degrees you've had from where you've had those degrees. Whereas if you look at in India, for example, a few years back when a survey was done, 50% of the top CEOs that were uh, interviewed said entry level uh, employees do not have basic life skills of collaboration, taking initiative, showing leadership, uh, managing conflicts, solving problems, decision making. And why are you looking at degrees when you're interviewing them? Why are you not testing for these life skills? And why aren't you not pushing higher education and school education to transform, to develop these skills before people enter the employment markets? So here is about creating mindset shifts. So our work with partners like employers, corporates has been one through by bringing, bringing them in as donors, but also bringing them in as advocates for this new way of being and living in the world. Uh, working with parents, working with policymakers, for example, the happiness curriculum that we're doing with the Delhi government came about because we worked with ministers, uh, the Ministry of Education in Delhi. We worked with the policymakers and decision makers, the Directorate of Education in Delhi, in shifting their mindsets around what's critical for children in the 21st century. How do we move the notion of education from, again, academics to well-being? Uh, and the happiness curriculum was a direct result of that work that we did in mindset shift with uh, officials at Delhi government. Uh, we've also been working with pedagogical experts, curriculum developers, uh, academicians, researchers, for example. Again, how do we create more evidence base in the sector that when you introduce children to play an art, when you introduce pedagogical approaches which are grounded in empathy, Uh, What kind of short-term, mid-term to long-term impact uh, happens in children's learning and learning abilities? 
uh, and the more evidence based now producing for the sector for the education space in india that is contextualized to india the more we are able to shift conversations around what's important in education and how do we transform education in the country so i want to explore that a little bit further and and it appears to me that dream a dream is a not for profit organization that's in, that is part of this kind of really important movement that's happening across the globe right now towards character formation or character education can you share with our listeners a little bit about that happiness curriculum that you just touched upon there in relation to everything you just shared uh, sure adriana uh the happiness curriculum was launched in delhi in 2018 it was launched in 1024 public schools for all children from kindergarten to grade 8 uh, which is about 800000 kids who get access to a happiness class uh, every single day six days a week through the school year the genesis of the program came uh, from the minister of education where when he visited schools Uh, public schools in delhi he realized the relationship that children had with the school with the teacher was that of fear and disengagement mm-hmm. they didn't really want to be in school of course they were struggling to be in school and engage in learning because of the uh, adverse experiences they had in early years of growing up and he wanted to change that he wanted to be, uh, make schools a safe space for children the children felt engaged safe emotionally connected and their well-being was really looked into and that led to the design of the happiness curriculum which is really focused on children's well-being and developing children's life skills so that they are better able to engage in learning the uh, curriculum itself uh, includes about every session basically includes about 5 to 7 minutes of mindfulness practices uh, and then a, a session either a storytelling session uh, or a play based activity uh, the curriculum itself is is designed as a highly intuitive curriculum because we didn't have the resources or the bandwidth to be able to train 18000 teachers that are delivering this curriculum across a thousand odd schools so we had to design a curriculum which really uh, a teacher could read through it and understand what needs to be done mm-hmm. uh, appeals to the basic uh, level of kindness and empathy and compassion in every teacher and education in the school system also it's not designed as a linear curriculum which is that you don't have to go through lesson 1 2 3 4 5 teacher can just pick up any lesson plan understanding what the feelings or emotions are in her classroom on that particular morning and and then pick a session that works that she or he believes will work in that morning uh, the curriculum is typically delivered first thing in the morning so the children start their day with a sense of joy and engagement Uh, what has happened over the years over the last 2 years of having run this curriculum is one that teachers have taken that energy and that emotion of joy into every other period through the school day so the atmosphere in the school itself has transformed that of engagement and joy and empathy and kindness uh, students definitely feel more engaged in the school system enrollments have gone up absenteeism from the school has gone down substantially uh, uh children have also taken learnings from the happiness curriculum from the stories and the play based activities into their homes in fact uh, the happiness curriculum has been a big success right now in the lockdown that we are facing in india the children are using the activities from the curriculum to keep themselves engaged at home and keep the parents engaged at home and the siblings engaged really interesting vishal that it's it's very clear to me that not only is the happiness curriculum but also the general philosophy of dream a dream is centered around each person being known each young person being valued 
and each young person being loved. It is terrific to hear that in this upheaval that we find ourselves in across the globe, that young people that have been part of a culture that isn't a deficit model, but one that leverages up from their inherent strengths and their inherent possibility, are now using it to not only survive during this pandemic, but to curate their own growth and, and a continuous growth. And so that's a real, that must be a real exciting prospect to you and your team to know that that, that arc of transformation has, has gone a long way in helping them understand not only how to be a responsible individual, but how to be a responsible global citizen. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I couldn't have said it better myself, Adriano. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty good, isn't it, Vishal? I'm, I'm really interested in, in this as a change, innovation, transformation exercise in and of itself because the, the work you at team are doing is just awesome. If I think back to the school that I started in as a very young history teacher and cricket coach, and at some point I want to ask you who your favourite Bangalore cricketer is, because <laughs> you've got to have one. And if it's not Anil Kumble, I'm going to be disappointed. But that's all right. Um, if, if I'd rocked into the staff room and said, hey, guys, let's do a happiness curriculum, I would have been frozen out of the joint. There's no way that people would have even contemplated that. So you've taken something that could be considered left field, loony, new age, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You've brought it right into the mainstream. It's in every school in Delhi and it's working. How have you managed to take something from the periphery to the mainstream and shift everybody's thinking forward? How, how, how does that transformation work? And in only two years. <laughs> uh, well, I would say it took us 20 years to do that. I think, uh, the, so the way to, I think there are three pieces of that journey. The first piece is the early design of this idea about why we need to invest in life skills and well-being of children, which came from our own work, having worked with children in shelter homes, institutional care systems, and listening to these children and listening to what's not working for them and designing curriculums and pedagogies that worked for the most vulnerable. And it was really then responding to the need uh, of the most vulnerable. Codifying that was a big piece of the second aspect of the journey codifying that at the level of the child, codifying that at the level of the teacher, codifying that at the level of the school system. Investing in evidence building, research was a key aspect of that. And a big aspect of the last, for the first 15, 16 years of the journey was advocating for this mindset shift, talking about it, writing about it, bringing together thought leaders from across the world and research from across the world into India and kind of almost seeding this idea into the system. And then when we spoke to the minister in Delhi in 2017, he was ready for the idea. We were ready with how to make this happen. He knew what he wanted. We knew how to make it happen. Uh, his intention was clear. Our pedagogical approach was strong. So the alignment was just perfect, but it took us 16 years to get to that place. Uh, and so it was really, I would say, a seeding process. And I keep, I'm reminded of this Chinese bamboo tree uh, which when you when you put the seed in the ground for the first five odd years, five, five and a half years, you don't see anything about the ground. But you keep nurturing it, you keep putting water in it and taking care of it. And then it sprouts and in six months, it's a huge tree. And our story has been like that. For the first 16 years, we were seeding and nurturing this idea that what children need is, is love and care and well-being and life skills. And then uh, when the opportunity arose with the government, we knew how to take it and how to make it happen for a million kids. So game-changing innovation that really transforms education isn't an overnight thing. 
it's patient work. You've got to have done your homework. You've got to have prepared the way. You've got to have all the ducks lined up. You've got to have the sponsors and partners in place. You've got to have the evidence there. And you've got to have had the vision and the fortitude to get you there to start with. What's the work that you've really enjoyed doing the most in this process? Well, I've, one is, I mean, the first 10 years, I, I spent all my time with uh, children and young people. I used to run the programs myself. I used to run the sessions myself. Uh, so that my intuition of understanding how children learn and develop came from those you know, first 10 years. Uh, and in the last 10 years, a big piece uh, of my uh, excitement and energy has been in taking these ideas to the world. Uh, so really being an advocate for children and young people in the world uh, has been uh, the most exciting piece of work I've done. We're going to now finish up, Vishal, and it's been a wonderful conversation uh, with you and we're really appreciative of it. So I've got one final kind of question for you. Recently at the, uh, the WISE seminar that featured you as the keynote speaker, you gave this following kind of little quote. This invitation during the, the virus, that is, is let's take the great pause. Let's invite stillness into our being let's allow emergence to come. Now, you may be in that position right now and, and it's still in a place of deep contemplation, but my final question has a relationship to that. When we benefit from moments of stillness and moments of deep reflection, we often have those kind of aha moments, particularly moments of struggle as well. What do you personally think is learning and schooling going to look like now post this pandemic? I honestly don't know what it's going to look like because I'm seeing a stillness and I'm also seeing anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm seeing anxiety with young people, parents, educators around how will we catch up to the time that we have lost. And I'm also seeing stillness of really just savoring and uh, letting emergence happen. Uh, my personal hope as we come out of this pandemic, uh, you know, for me, the, the excitement is that this is a pandemic that has impacted the whole world, mm -hmm. which is that the whole world can take this moment of pause uh, and be still. And my hope is that when we come out of this pandemic, we embrace the idea of compassion and healing in education systems that we spend this year healing the trauma that, uh, that young people and children across the board, across socioeconomic backgrounds uh, have faced, not just because of this pandemic, but because of all these years of an education uh, that has just created more stress in the system. Uh, so could we potentially just use this time, use this year? Let's, can we, for example, let go of the syllabus this year? And can every school just say, you know, this is the year we will spend on listening, listening to our children, listening to our young people. Can we spend this year on validating them, on helping them make sense of this new world? Can we work with children as co-creators in designing an education system uh, that is focused on thriving? Uh, I hope school systems can do that. You know, uh, Vishal, I remain really hopeful that we can actually grow out of this restlessness that you speak about because we are very fortunate to have individuals like you who are impacting so positively on the lives of the young people, the young people who are one day going to be our future leaders, who are going to shape this world going forward. And while a dreamer dream remains hopeful and committed to this transformation of the way of being, 
uh, I'm really optimistic that post this pandemic, we're going to continue to thrive. It's been an absolute delight listening to you and learning from you today. What a gift you and your organisation is to the young people of India and, of course, in many other parts of the world now. It, it continues to spread. Thank you very much for your time, Phil. Absolutely, Vishal. It's, it's just a, it, it, it's a real pleasure, sir, to listen to your wisdom and to trace your journey. The only, uh, the only last question I've got is, who is your favourite Bangalore cricketer? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's Javakul Srinath. I mean, I do like Anil Kumble. <laughs> oh, Srinath. Oh, my goodness. There we go. You're, you're a man of taste and distinction. Thank you very much and, and, uh, and bless you. you for the work you're doing, okay? Thank you, Phil, and thank you, Adriano, for this opportunity and for your very thoughtful questions. I've really enjoyed this time. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.